we're in the book of Daniel, chapter 3, and uh, there's a lot happening in this chapter. This is one of those chapters, like, uh, it's, it's so rich and so full, and also it's so kind of associated with your childhood. You know, the fiery furnace passage, the statue that when the music plays, they must bow down. We kind of have some VeggieTales imagery going on in our head if you grew up in the church, and I think we have to remove that a little bit. Um, but what I love about this is um, this, there's so much here. And so forgive me, I normally already, I know, I know I talk a little fast at times, I've been told, um, but there's so much here that I feel like we have to go through it. Um, I was like breaking this up between two different, you know, two weeks, chapter three, I'm like, I can't do that. So we're going to do chapter three this week. Um, I'm very excited. It's hard. There are certain passages in the scriptures that um, people maybe aren't familiar with, and I love those passages because my hope is to, like bring like, just the beauty out of that, the gospel out of that. There's so much in the word of God. I just feel like you can't like, there's just so much we can squeeze out of it. There's so much in it. And there's passages like this that are so rich, so meaningful, so beautiful. Uh, it's almost like, man, it's only downhill from here because it's almost like you can read this and just Holy Spirit bring application. Um, so I'm just praying that I don't, I don't want to, man, this is such a beautiful rich passage. I don't want to butcher it. It's amazing. There's so much here. So let me just give you some context. Um, we're making our way through the book of Daniel, and what we're really looking at is just resilient faith in exile. I don't know if there's a more appropriate book for us to be going through to start 2024 than just a group of individuals. I mean, it's been centered so far around four guys, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see them in chapter one and chapter two here in chapter three, but it's been centered around some young men who are in exile, who are the minority, where it's not popular to follow the one true God. It's not popular to follow Yahweh. It's a very pluralistic society. They're kind of outnumbered. Uh, they have to really kind of stand on their own two feet and stand up for their faith in so many different ways. The context of this is amazing, and I, like to, I do like to review because I want you to know where we're at, because this is so important for Israel's history and even for our history where we're at today. But I've mentioned this. Uh, Israel, after the book of Judges, they're like, we want a king, right? We want to be like every other nation. So they set up a kingdom with a king, and they had Saul, then David, then Solomon. Only lasted for three kings, 12 tribes together unified. And then it split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel, very good. The southern kingdom called Judah, right? The northern kingdom had no good kings ever. They never had one good king. It's interesting when you read it in, in 1 Kings and the Chronicles, it will just tell you this was an evil king or this was a good king. It will like straight up tell you. Had never had a good king in the north. The south had about five solid kings. And, and a few different times they saw revival and God moving and God working, but towards the end it just spiraled out of control with Manasseh and his sons and just a wicked kingdom. So that the north, the 10 tribes in the north fell to the Assyrians in the seventh century. And then you have the kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is. The, Jude, the tribe of Judah, Benjamin, the Levites. You have the southern kingdom, where eventually they fall to the Babylonians. This is just history. You can just read about this, look up on this. It's, it's fascinating. For about 20 years, there's a few different waves of persecution, essentially, in Jerusalem, taking them captive into Babylon. And you have Daniel and his three friends, taken from their homeland, teenagers, just separated, ripped apart. They're being assimilated into the Babylonian culture. They, because of their wisdom, because of like the royal family they're from, they're part of the king's court. So they're eating the best food, essentially having the best teachers, but they're really trying to conform them into the Babylonian culture in every way possible. And we've kind of seen these like stories of just, you know what, we're not going to do, we're not going to eat that. Maybe it's because of kosher reasons in Daniel 1. You see them in Daniel 2, interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's visions. We see them like having these moments of just God using them in powerful ways. And we come to chapter 3 where they really have to be resilient in their faith. And this is a fascinating story. And here's what I want you to see in Daniel 3 as we kind of just set this up a bit. Um, there is a battle for our attention, for our worship. Essentially in Daniel 3, there's a battle to get them to worship their gods. I know you guys know this, but um, there is a battle in a sense for our attention and for what we worship. And God's like, I'm a jealous God. I'm the one true God. Worship me and me only. And the Babylonians are saying, you can worship all of the gods. Go ahead and worship your God, but don't act like that's the only God. You can worship your God as long as you acknowledge our gods. And so there's this tension happening. And we don't know where Daniel is, by the way. I'll just kind of set that up. We don't know where Daniel is. There's a lot of speculation. In Daniel chapter 3, we don't see Daniel. Uh, he's, at the, he's kind of like with the king, kind of at the highest realm of the kingdom. So it's possible he's somewhere else. It's possible he wasn't here. But this story kind of zooms in on these three guys. And again, it's a story we're familiar with. But my hope and my prayer is that um, we would just see some new things today. Even for me just studying it this week, I feel like my heart's just been refreshed. I've been blessed by these guys. I like to think I'm those guys. 
when in reality, the Bible is like, you're probably more like Nebuchadnezzar than you think. <laughs> Welcome to the exchange. Um, and there's some things in this passage that, you know, we might relate to. There's some things we might not relate to. And there's some things ultimately we see just um, in the fire, we see God meet them. And so I, I, I don't want to read the story right now. We're going to pray in just a second, and we'll read it in a, in a minute. Um, but I, I do want to slow down and just acknowledge the fact that right now there is like competition in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm, for your worship. I mean, Satan demands worship. I can't not read this and think of just Matthew 4, Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. If you just bow down to me, I'll give you all of this. And, and essentially, this is what's happened to these guys. Just bow down. Just bow down when the music plays, you'll be good. And there's this competition for our attention and for our worship. And obviously, you know, my hope as a, just a people is not that we worship God on Sunday, then worship these other gods throughout the week. And, and that can be the temptation, I think, for us. We say, God, I love you and I worship you supremely, but on Monday I also worship the God of money or worship the God of whatever, you know. My hope is that God supremely gets all of our attention, all of our worship, that when the music plays, we won't bow to another. And so this is, this is a fascinating story. There's so much here. Uh, the title today, if you do take notes, uh, the title today is Bow Down for What? It's a throwback to my high school ministry days. Uh, it's, in, <laughs> it's inside things sort of, if you, uh, yeah. There's a video, by the way, called Bow Down for What that I was a part of, and um, I cannot find it. And I was looking so hard this week. If you somehow are good at finding things, look up Bow Down for What. I have no idea if you'll find this. Anyways, uh, for older generations, just, uh, you know, we're kind of playing off a song. I'll move on from that thought. Uh, <laughs> but Bow Down for What's the title. Here's the idea that as we're kind of approaching just this book of, of Daniel, um, I love this quote from John Tyson. He, he wrote a book called Creative Minorities, a small little book, a fascinating read. I'd highly encourage you to read it, especially in light of just where we're at, 2024. Here's how he describes a creative minority. This fits well with the book of Daniel. I want to read this so we kind of get familiar with this every week, but he says this. A creative minority is a Christian community in a web of stubbornly loyal relationships knotted together in a living network of persons who are committed to practicing the way of Jesus together for the renewal of the world. Here's what we see in Daniel 3. A few friends and stubbornly loyal relationships committed to the way of Yahweh, committing to the ways of the teachings that, of the Torah, of what they grew up with, of what they know. And we're going to see literally God meet them in their most painful, difficult moment. So um, why don't we just do this? Why don't we pray? We'll read in a second. There's a lot of verses. Why don't we just pray? Slow down. Why don't you just bow your heads even? It's like, God, I'm familiar with the story, but speak to me. Show me something new. Put something on my heart. Help me to live this out. Help me to just walk with you in the midst of suffering. Just, why don't you just take a second, you talk to God. You just invite God. God, I have an open heart. I want to hear from you. I have ears. I want to hear from you. Just take a second. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. I want to thank you so much for the examples you've left us. I want to thank you for the hope it creates in us, Lord. Lord, um, I ask that we would see you, Jesus, in this. That we believe that Jesus, this, the word, the scriptures, they speak of you. So we want to see you. God, God we ask that um, we would relate to you in ways maybe we, ha we haven't considered. God, we ask that as just there's many individuals in here, Lord, who are still maybe trying to follow you alone. I ask that they'd no longer do that, that we would stand up together, <laughs> that we would be in loyal, committed relationships with you and with each other. Lord, I just ask that you bring clarity to this text. I ask that you bring insight. Lord, the things that um, you want to bring to light, bring to light now. We just thank you, Jesus. We hope this just honors you. <laughs> God, we hope that you would create within us by your grace and just by your Holy Spirit, just more resilient faith, that God, we'd be men and women of conviction, that we would not compromise, that, that Lord, that we'd be loving in our conviction, gracious in our conviction, but just stand firm on that. And so, Lord, I just want to thank you again and just look to you now in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Um, I want to recommend a YouTube video to you guys. Uh, and you've probably seen videos like this before. It's called Brain Games Conformity Waiting Room. Uh, maybe you, I'm, I'm going to describe it. And you're probably like, oh, I've seen that. But it's basically a, a social experiment that deals with herd behavior, social programming, and just 
uh, social conformity. So here's the idea. Um, it's very interesting. There's basically this doctor's office. It's like an eye exam doctor's office, as I'm describing. You might be like, oh, I've seen that one. But there's this eye exam doctor's office. Everyone is in on this social experiment except the person who's about to walk in. And as she walks in, she goes to the front desk. She goes, hi, I'm here for my free eye exam. They are throwing out free eye exams. I'm here for that. And everyone's sitting down in a row. And, and she sits down. And as she sits down, she, there's a beep on the loudspeaker. Everyone hears it. There's a beep. And then after the beep, basically everyone, they have their newspaper or magazine they're looking at. And they don't like to look around. They just quite like stand up after the beep and sit back down. And she, you see her going, what the heck? You know, could you imagine walking in that room and like it's just you and you hear a beep. Everyone stands up. And she's like, that was weird. The second time, beep. Everyone just stands up with the newspaper calmly, not a big deal, and then sits back down. By the third beep, you hear a beep, everyone stands up, and you just see her like, look around. She's like, she stands up, and she's like, looks kind of around, and then everyone sits down, and she sits down. And then they kept doing it, and she would stand up every time from that point on. Now, the experiment goes on, it's like a six-minute video or whatever, seven-minute video, but you see like the doctor come in, like, oh, we, they call a few names, and you see a person or two leave, and then another beep, and they stand up with less people. Then they go in the room, and there's less people in the main waiting room, and another beep, and they all stand up. Eventually, it's just this lady by herself. It's just this lady by herself, and there's a beep. And she stands up by herself and then sits back down. And then another guy walks in, and he's, par- he's not part of the experiment. He, too, is there for the free eye exam. And the beep happens, and she like, kind of smiles, laughs. She stands up, and then this guy looks at her, and she sits back down. And he, and he does ask. He goes, why'd you do that? Why are you standing? She's like, everyone did that, so I'm pretty sure we're supposed to do that. He's like, okay. So he joins in. So the next beep, he stands up. And then from that point on, basically anyone coming in was just coming in based off this like advertisement, essentially, whatever. So all these people come in. There's the third person walks in, the beep, two stand up, and then the third guy. Everyone joined in. There's about like this eighth person who walks in. There's like eight people in the waiting room now, and like the last guy is so hesitant. Like he's he's like not for this. Like everyone's standing up. He's like so weirded out. And you see him kind of put his hands on his chair. And he's like no. Then he stands up. Everyone gave in essentially. And you watch this, and first of all, it is the most uncomfortable video. You're like thinking about you know. I'm trying to like, what would I do. You know, you're like, of course I would not stand. I don't know, right? Um, I, in my mind, I am very stubborn. I don't think I would. I'd be like, what, you guys are crazy. I don't know. Um, but it's fascinating how many people heard. It's like Pavlov's law kind of thing. They heard that sound and it's like, this is just what we do. And basically, the social experiment went on to say, it's not just a way to control people's behavior. And this is what I find fascinating, right? They hear that. They see that. They model that. This is what we, this is what we do when we hear the sound. Everyone does this. It's not just a way to basically control people's behavior, but basically to control how you think. So it shapes not just what you do, but it shapes how you perceive things. And that's basically saying, you know, it goes on to say, and there's probably a lot of things in life that we do that shape our behavior and shape how we think. And you're like, oh, that's kind of terrifying. Um, and this is the idea, right? This is really what's happening essentially in, in Daniel chapter 3. It's almost like when the music plays, this is just what you do. You bow down. I think we have to explore this idea. We live in a weird moment where... Well, this is what you do this month. The music is playing. It's time to bow down to this month's new theme, to this new idea infiltrating the world. This is just what you do. And so I want to read this story because we might view this as this is pagan, this is ancient. We would never participate this way. This is outdated. They're, they're worshiping idols. I can't believe they do that when you see there's so many crossovers and similarities between their pluralistic culture and our Western pluralistic culture. And so this is what I want to explore with you in the front end. So here's how we're going to break up. I kind of view this as different scenes in a movie almost, essentially. Um, And you're going to kind of see how this plays out. So I'll make it really simple. We'll look at verse 1 through 19. We see the confrontation, just confrontation. Um, 1 through 15, sorry. Then number 2, you see conviction. Just one of the most beautiful, um, I think, phrases or paragraphs in the Old Testament on how they're going to live their life, their perspective. And then you're going to see Christ, because just Jesus is littered in this scripture. So, confrontation, conviction, Christ. Let's look at, let's read the story now. It's uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Here's the story, a story you're very familiar with, maybe, maybe not, but that's okay. Here we go. Daniel 3, verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, remember chapter 2? I'm so sorry, I already stopped. Um, Chapter 2, what happened? He has this vision, this vision of what? The head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, then of bronze and of iron. Like, he sees this body just glowing, and it's, it's bright and shining, but then this rock comes and strikes the feet, and this whole thing falls apart, and it turns to dust. Remember the vision he had? And Daniel interprets it and goes, yo, King Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And he describes this vision, but basically saying, your empire, there'll be another empire, right? There's the Medes and the Persians. 
and there's the Greek empire, then the Roman empire. There's going to be these different empires will come and go, but this rock strikes the feet and takes it all out. And we know that Jesus is the rock in, in Daniel chapter 2. He's the rock of offense. He's the, he's the rock that the builders have rejected but become the chief cornerstone. So it's essentially it's saying, look at all these precious, valuable things, but then this rock that appears to have no value takes it out, and this rock grows into a large mountain which cannot be moved. Essentially what we're just leaving is in Daniel 2 is every kingdom will come and go, but Jesus' kingdom will remain forever. Nothing's going to stop it. Kings and kingdoms will come and go, but the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus, the rock on which I stand, he will rule and reign forever. And so Daniel's like, or Daniel interprets his dream. And he goes, your, your one true God is the one true God. Like, your God is the one true God. Now, Daniel 3, right after that, after this kind of false confession of Daniel's God being the one true God, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image, circle image, of the image, you can circle that, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set and set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald, the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages, is key, fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8. Therefore, at that, certain, uh, at, that, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Notice that. Just the Jews. More than just these guys. You just see anti-Semitism here right away. Verse 9. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, they really love to repeat themselves, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Woo! All right. Backdrop, a little story. Obviously, you kind of got the idea. Um, the confrontation, the music. Now, here's what's fascinating. Obviously, it repeats itself a lot. I want you to notice that. It's repeating a couple different things. It's re repeating the music, and it's repeating who's there. I want you to think about this kind of a ceremony. Like, we have certain ceremonies in our country. Basically, every nation has certain ceremonies. A lot of people gathered together. The band is playing. People are either celebrating or sad. There's, like sort of, there's different ceremonies that we have. I want you to think when it's describing the governors and justice, like everyone there. If anyone's important, essentially, they're there. I mean, everyone's there in this like, land, in this plain outside of Babylon. It's estimated, some have estimated maybe a million people were there gathered. This is not optional. You're, you're forced to go, and you're forced to, like, and, and imagine how magnificent must, this must have looked. The idea is this is a 90-foot statue. Most likely the inside is wood and the outside is gold, but this golden statue, 90 feet high, about nine feet wide. About, imagine like this orchestra or this band playing, all the officials in their robes. and Imagine kind of the ceremony. And when everyone bows down, I mean, you just stand out like a sore thumb. 
Everyone's bowing down. Every, the music's playing. You know what to do when the music plays. And I want you to think through this. Now, first of all, what is this statue or literally the word in Aramaic? Because remember, now it's in Aramaic. This is written in, in Aramaic till the end of chapter 7. But this word is basically saying it's, it's an idol, this idol. It's not really a statue, it's an idol. And it kind of had a lot, of, a lot of different ideas behind it. Uh, there's speculation about what this is. I don't know if we have to speculate too much. Um, I do believe this is basically playing off of Daniel 2. It's most likely an image of uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself or of Nebu, the, the god that they worshipped at that time. But here's the idea. Think about this. What did Daniel just tell him in Daniel 2? Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. And after you, he's going to come different empires, silver, bronze, iron. And one by one, essentially, they, they all fall. This rock takes them out. But you're the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar wasn't mad. He's actually like, thank you. you, you told, I, I saw this image over and over again. I've seen it in my mind. You told me what my dream was. Then you interpreted it. He actually celebrates Daniel. He's like, good. Thank you so much. And then basically, immediately, he goes out and builds what? A statue of gold. And the idea is, I think, honestly, I think it's, I think it's such a... Basically, I know you think your God is the one true God, and I will acknowledge what he did with this vision here, but I'm not just the head of gold, I'm everything. It's not just the head of gold, and then the chest of silver. From head to toe, this thing's gold, this golden image. Basically, it's a reflection of the self. This is almost worship of self, it's self-worship. You know, again, I, I said this, but it's true. I like to read this passage and think, man, I'm one of those three guys. But in reality, we say the majority of the world, we're, we're a lot like Nebuchadnezzar. We worship self. We know, we've seen God move and work. He saw God move and work. But eventually he's like, let me not just be this head. I want to be everything. I'm going to build this thing from head to toe of gold. I'm going to worship self. There is something here I think that we have to focus on. You know, it's funny. Um, it's kind of been said, you don't talk about two things at the dinner table, like religion and politics. Uh, the statue kind of represents both. <laughs> it's like our nation is the greatest nation. We're not going anywhere. Head to toe. Also, this, like, the religion of self. It's basically the two things like you don't talk about and like this is what he wants to bring up. And he wants to, hey, you're going to worship us, our nation, and you're going to worship me. You're going to worship self. Now, there's a few things that I do find fascinating about this, and I just want to slowly kind of break this down. Um, you, you know the general gist of this, of this story. And this is, I think, very important. We'll put the verse up here this way, verse 5. When you hear the sound of, and he named six musical instruments, when you hear the sound of every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image. It's the idea of you know, the music comes on, it's time to bow. The music is on, you know what to do here. I do think we live in a very similar moment where we, maybe we see in what we could call like popular culture or our culture, it's like, oh, this is the time of month we all bound to the image of what? Like this is the time of our business or corporation, we're going to focus on this. And then when the music plays, you better bow down. And I do think this can happen some, at university, it could be the same way. You might be in college right now, going to classes. Professors say, hey, this month we're going to celebrate this. And the music is playing, and the idea is you better bow down when the music plays. And this happens in so many different capacities. It's just interesting to me. We like to think that this is ancient and pagan, but it still happens today. The music is playing, and it's almost like, why are you still standing? You know what to do. Why are you resisting? Trust the officials. Trust the experts. <laughs> Sorry. But trust this, what's going on. You know what to do. This is the time to bow to what they say. And they're just going, no. Know what's interesting about this literature? So Esther, Daniel, Revelation, it's basically published resistance literature. I want you to think about how um, in your face this literature is essentially, but also how humble it is in its approach. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not like fighting other people, like, how dare you, and kicking them, like, stand up. They're not like trying to make people do it with them. They're just quietly and humbly standing when everyone else is bowing. We're going to read in a second, but they're like, oh, king, oh, majesty. They're addressing the king with so much respect, something I think that we have lost a lot today as Christians. But there's so much respect for a really wicked guy, a really wicked king. And yet there's respect. And it's, it's just interesting. This is published resistance literature. And it's basically saying, hey, this is what you do and how you respond when contemporary culture or politics around you is saying what to do. It's saying we're not going to try to force the people to stand. We're just going to stand quietly, and whatever might come, might come. There's a few things, obviously, we can learn from this. So here's what I find fascinating. This, this really is interesting. You probably noticed this. And I, I don't want to um, – well, actually, um, before I even go there, um, I do want you to think about the music playing. I do want you to think about if you don't fall down, we're basically going to kill you. 
I love what Adrian Rogers, the pastor, said about this. He says, the devil does not want casualties. He wants converts. The devil wants to be worshipped. So first and foremost, the goal is not necessarily like we want to kill you. The goal is we just want you to worship. But if you don't worship, we're going to kill you. <laughs> so he wants, he wants converts. And if you're not going to convert, he wants, he'll have you be a casualty. But you see this battle for worship. And you do see this from Isaiah 14. There's certain scriptures that you just see there's like this, this heavenly kind of spiritual battle for just worship and attention. And God's like, obviously, um, I'm the author. I'm the creator of all things. I'm the one who deserves all worship. I'm worthy of all worship. Satan, who's a created being, also wants that worship, wants that attention. And you kind of see this battle for worship, battle for your attention, battle for what you might bow down to. Now, here's a way to see. This is what I find ultimately fascinating. Um, this was, in this moment, imagine your Babylon. This is actually kind of brand new. They basically accepted every culture, every faith, every person. A lot of times they would kill off the men. They would kill off the leaders. They still do do that to some capacity, but they're also really trying hard to assimilate people into their culture. So Babylon's different in some ways where it's like, you know what? You can actually worship your gods, but you're going to also worship our gods. You can also kind of keep what you believe, but you're going to acknowledge what we believe. And so there is this pluralistic kind of coexist mentality for them then, which is kind of fascinating. Obviously, we like to think we're so progressive. We like to think, man, we've changed so much in a few thousand years. We're really similar. We're still living a very pluralistic society. Whenever I see a coexist sticker, something like me, like, a, like you see the coexist sticker on something's car, you're like, man, what is that? It actually, I think it's one of the most offensive things to every faith, which I want to look at in a second. It's basically saying, oh, that's so cute. All of you essentially believe, this, believe the same thing, but we, on the other hand, know ultimate truth. And so here's the idea. A lot of times in pluralistic societies, what they think is we're very tolerant, and if you believe you have the one true God, you're intolerant. But what we see here, it's basically worship or die. So in the culture that's pluralistic and supposed to be tolerant, they're in fact, I think, the most intolerant of all. And I think this is interesting because this is there's a lot of actually sociologists and different people who write about this. They, there's a lot of guys in the literature I find fascinating. It's basically saying, if you believe you have absolute truth, if people believe in monotheism, they believe they worship the one true God, it will always and ultimately lead to totalitarianism. If you believe that you worship the one true God, um, you will probably by nature eventually want to force people into it. Now, here's these guys who believe in the one true God, and they're not trying to force anyone into it. In fact, they're going, we do believe we, have, we worship the one true God. We're not going to bow to your God. The, the, the tolerant pluralistic society is the one saying, worship, bow down, or we'll kill you. And they're saying, I guess we'll be killed. And I do want to point this out because I do think there's such a hypocrisy in what we see today. I think that as Christians, maybe even you feel this way. Maybe you feel like, man, like we're called bigoted and intolerant. There's all these names thrown at us. When in fact, Jesus calls me to love everyone. It's very interesting how like we can love someone wholeheartedly. They're image bearers of God. I love you. Whatever you want to identify as, I'm called to love you the way Christ loves you. Doesn't mean you have to affirm everything you believe. Doesn't mean you have to agree with everything you believe. That's, and think about this. If you're a parent or a spouse, how much, you know this. I love you regardless. You might believe things I don't believe. You might do things I don't agree with, son or daughter. But I still love you regardless. And I'm still going to do my best to present truth to you because I love you and I care for you. And I think there is this idea that if you love me, you must affirm me. That's not love. And in the pursuit of being tolerant, we become very intolerant. In this pursuit of Nebuchadnezzar saying, look at me. Look at this, all faiths, tribes, tongues, nations. By the way, you have to connect this to Genesis 11. Remember, Babylon is connected to Babel. It is. It's the land of Shinar. Same land, same idea. All tribes, nations, tongues gathered. They wanted to make a great name for themselves, Genesis 11 says. Uh, fun fact, I'm not going to get into this too much today, but if you want to compare Genesis 11 to Daniel 3 to Revelation 13 and 17, it's very interesting. You see Babel, Babylon, Babylon. You see the same spirit, the same ego. There's a lot of similarities in those passages. It's fascinating, and it's fun to explore. But you see that idea of, look at all tribes, nations, tongues, essentially one tongue, but then it's, it left from Babel. They're gathered together in Babylon. You see this in the future, essentially. But here's why I'm bringing this up. You see with Babylon this idea of, look at, we have everyone here gathered. Aren't we, look at, we're so diverse, we're so pluralistic, this is amazing, we're very tolerant, we tolerate everything except your belief that yours, you have the only true God, and if you do, we will murder you. So here's why I'm bringing this up. I love what Keller says, and whether or not you kind of follow me on this thought, you might agree with this, might not agree with this, but I like how he says this. He says, religious pluralism on the outside looks tolerant. When you push in, as I've been trying to show you, and he explains that, there's a note of intolerance. Christianity on the outside looks intolerant. Jesus is the absolute truth, the way. But if you push on in, you will find tremendous tolerance. I think in other words, like freedom. 
it looks, like, it looks tremendously free. But the more you get in there, you go, there's not a lot of freedom here. See, Jesus is the narrow way. He's the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. And it's crazy because you enter by the narrow gate and you go, it leads to life. The narrowness leads to life. And I love that. And then broad is the way that leads to destruction, but what does it lead to? Narrowness. Broad is the way, tolerant is the way that leads to death. Narrow is the way that leads to life. It seems on the outside, it seems that way, but you get on the inside, you go, wait a second, I'm loved for who I am? Absolutely. God accepts me? Absolutely. Wait, people are actually more gracious than you realize in the church? Like, they understand I'm a sinner? I'm just flesh? I'm just dust? Like, they understand, like, I have issues in my life? Yeah. It's not this holier-than-thou crowd? No. We're a bunch of people in need of the grace and love of Jesus. We're a bunch of people pursuing that. We're not going to tolerate it, though. At the same time, we're not going to be like, hey, we still want to like, push you to love and good works. We say, hey, that's okay. You are loved the way you are, but Jesus wants to transform you and change you and shape you into his image. And so it's beautiful because, like, yes, Jesus is the way, but when, you get in the, when you're in Christ and you're a new creation, you realize how free it is in Christ. And I, I just love this idea. On the outside, you think about Nebuchadnezzar. He looked crazy tolerant. He's like, guys, everyone's welcome, but if you don't bow down, we'll kill you. <laughs> And then I love, you don't see these guys, you don't see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being like, well, we'll kill you. <laughs> They're just like, hey, so be it. We're going to stand for this truth in this way. Uh, Jonathan Dotson said it this way, and this is a longer quote, so bear with me, but I love how he puts it. He says, religious pluralism insists that its view always lead, so they say always lead to God, is true while all other religions are false in their exclusive teachings. Religious pluralism dogmatically insists on its exclusive claim. Namely, that all roads lead to God. The problem, as we have seen, is that this claim directly contradicts many religions, like Islam, Hinduism, Judaism, and Christianity. The claim of the religious pluralist is arrogant because it enforces its own beliefs on others. Religious pluralism isn't enlightened, it's inaccurate. It isn't humble, it's fiercely dogmatic. And it isn't really all that tolerant, because it intolerantly blunts religious distinctions. That is good. In the end, religious pluralism is a religion, a leap of faith, based on contradiction and is highly untenable. Whew. I love that it calls out its inconsistency. It's like, how dare you claim that your way is the only way to God? Always lead to God. You're like, that sounds exclusive. That's an absolute statement you just made. It's very inconsistent in its approach. And so you see this idea of, hey, guys, we're Babylon. Everyone's well. We've got every culture. You can keep your gods as long as you admit that your God is not the one true God. Keep your gods. You do, again, you do see this, and this happens in the church. It's like, listen, I'll worship God on Sunday, but I'll worship sex on Monday. I'll worship God on Sunday, but I'll worship money or this thing on Tuesday. The idea is we can fall into this trap of he's one of the many gods. We might say he's supreme, but there's still all these other gods. There has to be a clear distinction. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's a clear distinction. It's like, no, there's no room for compromise here. You, I, I want you to understand, it's so, the self-talk that would be happening in my mind right now would be dangerous. I don't know about you. I'll just bow down. It doesn't really mean anything. You know, I'm just going to, I mean, God knows my heart. <laughs> we say that all the time. We say that like in a good way. God knows my heart. Like, yeah, he knows it's really awful. He knows it's super wicked. What do you mean God knows my heart? I love how we use that. God knows my heart. Like, what do you mean? Like, he knows it's tremendously terrible like because my heart's not good my heart is wicked above all but it's just so funny so i think the self-talk in my mind would be like well everyone's bound down i'm in babylon this is what you do i mean if i if i, I guess I'll, if i die i can't be a light so I, should, I might as well stay alive right like i could so so see myself trying to talk myself into like why it's not a big deal and this is so dangerous our self-talk really matters obviously i would say that even this idea of um, notice this this is so important to me because um it's not, they're not standing alone. But this is a fun fact to me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are always mentioned together. Just funny. It's like in that order. Even as kids, you just say it like that. Daniel seems to be mentioned alone. You know, Daniel's right in this. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, man, they're together. They like, hey, yo, we're suffering, but we're suffering together. That's profound. I would actually encourage you, don't necessarily try to stand alone. There might be times, and listen, throughout church history, you have a lot of individuals who had to stand alone as they faced their lion's end, as they're lit on fire, as they're just fed to different things. I mean, Christians went through it, and, and you might have to stand alone. But I love this. They are together. And you're going to see them reply. It's almost in one voice, in one voice, in verse 16 through 18. You, you really need to know who answers is it Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. But you're going to see this, like, heartbeat of, like, they all believe what they're about to say. And it's in one voice, essentially, of what they're saying. But it just gives us a point, like, you are going to suffer. Do your best to be in community. <laughs> Dear best, not be alone. You are going to face different moments in culture where they say, bow down or you will lose your job. You must sign this document or you will lose this. 
There will be those moments. And, and I also do think, man, what a profound opportunity. People are attracted to conviction. And, and we'll get to that in a second. But there's something profound about that. So, so basically, hey, the music's playing. This is the time to bow down. One of the things I want to point out is perhaps the greatest temptation for Christians is not, at, not outright rebellion, but simply quiet compromise. So one of the, I think, again, for us, it's not like, I'm just going to rebel against this. It's like, quietly, we'll just fall in line. That is probably a more dangerous temptation for us today. I think it's just easy for us to be like, oh, no big deal. Like, this is essentially what the culture is, right? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Benigo are like, <laughs> I can't imagine you sit up so bad. Like, burr, 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 I don't know, the music plays. And they're just like, hands in pocket, sitting, I don't know, just sitting there. And it's like, wow, okay. Everyone's bowing down. They're like, no. I love the Chaldeans are running and saying, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, and they're like trying to, you know, compliment him. They're against you and your gods. And actually, in verse 14, he makes it really clear. He's like, you're against our gods. You're against our plurality. You're, you're against our coexist. Why are you against that? It's not just they're against the image. He literally says in verse 14, you're against my go- our gods. So the idea is like, yeah, we are. Whatever god the world is worshiping, we are against that because there's one true god. I, I want to be known, I want to like be known for what I'm for, but yes, that means I'm, one, I'm for the one true god. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'm for him. He is the way, the truth, and life. I'm not ashamed of Jesus. You know, what's interesting about this is when someone says my faith is private, I'm sorry. This story contradicts your faith is private. I'll say this. Your faith is personal, but it's not private. You know, I'd say it's actually incredibly public. And I love this because there is this temptation. Like, keep your faith out of the world. Keep your faith out of politics. Keep your faith out of this. I'm sorry. There's no way. This framework of God and who he is, why do you get to have your worldview, but I have to leave my worldview behind? Not Okay. You're saying you can have your pluralistic, secular worldview into any side of society, of society, but I have to keep my worldview out of this? That's just not the case. But you see them going about this, and I think in a loving, silent, peaceful way as well. And I think it's important how they, how they approach this. So again, your faith, it's not private. It is personal, but it's not private. It's incredibly public. Jesus' death on the cross for us, we know this. It was incredibly public. Jesus didn't die in private. So that's why Paul in Romans 1 goes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation. Why would I be ashamed of something? Jesus wasn't ashamed of me on the cross. Why would I be ashamed of him? So there's not this, they're not timid. There's not this weakness, but there is this peaceful resistance. And it's fascinating to me. So the first thing is this, the confrontation, the challenge, what they're being faced with. And then verse 16 and 18, so Nebuchadnezzar calls them in. Then we see the response. Verse 16, let's look at number two, it's conviction. This is, I think, some of the best scripture we see. Look at verse 16. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, notice how they talked to him, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Um, this is a beautiful framework, I think, on how to respond to these kind of moments where you feel like, you know, you're under trial, you're under fire, there's a tension, all eyes on you. You got to understand, I love different translations, but they're like, oh, king, oh, majesty. I love that they're incredibly nice and kind. I mean, because they're Christians, right? Like, the idea is like, there's so much grace and tact in how they respond, but they're also very firm. And I, I love this breakdown. There's deep, deep, deep conviction. And you're like, what's the difference of conviction versus my opinion? Just like, how do I know, like, this is not my opinion? How do I know this conviction? Uh, Rod Batoon, he's a great commentator. He spoke about this. He says this. He says, obviously, we know this phrase. He says, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. I do think that needs to be something we realize a little more. If you don't stand for something, you will fall for anything. Real convictions disturb, but they also attract. Too many in our day seem to have opinions, but few convictions. Opinions are based on what we think is right or wrong. Biblical convictions, however, rest upon the authority of the word of God. There might come a moment where you go, I know this is, um, you know, it's like Acts chapter 5, when you see the apostles being challenged. And they're like, do you think we should follow God, or do we, or do we think we should follow man? There, there's going to maybe come some points where you go, I, I, I get it. Maybe there's a law where you can't preach the gospel freely in certain countries. Do you obey the law of the land at that point in time? Hey, if you preach the gospel, you'll be thrown in jail. Okay, I'm going to preach the gospel, though. 
the idea there, there'll be the commands of man, there'll be the commands of God. And there comes a point in time you say, the commands of man contradict the commands of God. Now, here's the thing. I'm not getting into this too much because we did this uh, maybe a year or two ago, three years ago now, actually. But Romans 13 is actually beautifully clear. Like, we are to respect the authority God has placed over us. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, Romans 13 is a beautiful passage for us. Christians should give more attention to. I would highly encourage you to just spend some time praying through and meditating on Romans 13. There comes a point in time where you go, God, there's certain authority you place over us that we are going to respect. You know, if Paul can appeal to Caesar and be so gracious to Caesar who wanted to basically murder him, um, I think we can be uh, respectful to our overseers. There's this idea that Romans 13, how we respond is incredibly, incredibly important. However, there will come a point in time the commands of men will contradict the commands of God. I mean, it is sad. You do see this in different countries. I mean, whether it's a North Korea, maybe extreme, or Canada, where pastors are just meeting and being thrown in jail, you're going, what is going on? And you see the conviction of, listen, I'm not going to stop the gathering of the saints. Or you see this conviction of, I'm going to preach the word of God. I will say that there is male and there is female, and there's only two, and there's not a multitude of genders. And you'll see certain convictions that people have, and like, I, it's okay. I love you. God loves you. you. You might identify as fill in the blank, but I still love you, and God still loves you. But also, you can live into the way that God has created you. And I think there comes a point we have to say, you know what, I can care for you, I can love you, I can disagree with you, and I'm not going to compromise on this. And I love this because this is not our opinions at this point in time. There are certain things, I'll say this, don't die on a hill for your opinion. Please don't. Too many Christians do die on certain hills, and I'm like, that's your opinion. That is not scripture. I don't put, but I don't think enough Christians are dying on the hill of this is the word of God. And we're not going to shy away from it. We're not going to hate you, we're not going to belittle you, we're not going to mock you, we're going to love you, but we're also going to disagree in that love. And I do see this spirit in them. It's so beautiful. It's like, we are not going to compromise. Like, so be it. We might die, but we cannot bow to anyone else. You have to understand, we will not bow to the religion of our day. We will not bow to the politics of our day. We're going to bow to the one true God that does not change. He is the same yesterday and for today and forever. And we're going to bow to him and to him only. And that is the spirit I, I see in them. That it's peaceful, it's loving, it's kind, but it's very firm in its stance. And I, so I love this because there's actually a few points I want to point out, obviously, verse 16 and 18. You, you saw this. Basically, here's what they say. We believe that God can. And notice the we. We, they're together. We believe that God can. We expect that he will, <laughs> but we trust him if he doesn't. This is what they're saying. We believe that God is able. That's literally what they say. Look at the first one. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace. That's a good start, guys. Like church, believe that God is able, right? Next thing, our God is able. I don't know. But we believe that God is able. We believe that God can. I love that. There is something about acknowledging um, God's authority is way above anyone's authority here on earth. God can. God can and is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. I, I do think that we should come to God in that capacity. God, you're able. I'm coming to you. The only one who's able to get me out of this. I think we do turn to so many things or ideas or books. Maybe this will help me get out of this. Maybe this thought is plaguing me and I'll turn to this psychologist or I'll turn to this thought. We come to you, God, because you're the one, you're the only one who's able. You're the only one who can. And then, I love this, we expect that he will. It literally says, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. That, yo, that was amazing. When you read that, like, hey, our God is able, our God can, and he will deliver us out of your hand. I, I love that thought of just, we, we must expect that he will. I love how James puts it and Jesus puts it in different ways, but in regard to prayer, it says, if we ask anything, okay, this is this phrase, according to his will, he hears us. If we ask anything according to his will, not our will. That verse can be abused, but I also think it can be um, un unapplied. I think we should come to God in prayer and ask him for things according to his will. I think we should do what James says, make sure we don't ask selfishly or ask amiss. I think we should do this internal kind of check thing, like, God, am I asking selfishly? Am I asking for my selfish gain, my pleasure? But there's something beautiful. Have you been around believers who are just like, you know what? This is God's heart for this person, to be freed from this thing that is plaguing them. When we expect God to free them. I've been a part of some prayer meetings where we've laid hands on some individuals, and like you just see the prayers of faith over them, and you see the tears coming, and you just, like afterwards you talk to the person, they're like, I don't, I can't describe it, but I just feel free from that idea that haunted me. Free from the thought of death plaguing me. Free from this anxious thought that I could not run away from or this childhood trauma I walk through that I just see in my mind every day and you see people praying like God will free you. Not that you won't ever face that or that you won't ever have a heart, but the idea that this thing does not own you and control you. There's a God who owns you and controls you and he is good and he is for you. And what can separate you from the love of God? 
neither death nor life nor principalities nor power. Like nothing can separate you. And when someone gets hold of that truth, they go, oh my gosh, wait, nothing can separate me from the love of God. I, I love seeing Christians reading Romans 8, but then like experiencing Romans 8. And there's a difference between like reading it and going, I know nothing can separate me from the love of God. But then when you meet a Christian who's like, nothing can separate me from the love of God. And you go, oh Lord, like make that, make that transition in someone's heart and mind and soul. And like that's what we're praying for. We can know the scriptures and you can experience the scriptures. And I love this because this is, this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We know that God can and he will deliver us. And I love that because in some ways it's just going, I don't know. Maybe not the way I expect. Maybe not in my time. Maybe it is after death. Maybe he delivers me from this body of death. And I love this because there's such a freedom. He will. So there's this like, faith. And then obviously, here's the last part, and you guys know this. So we, he, we believe that he can, we expect that he will, but we trust him if he doesn't. And he says uh, in verse 18, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. This is funny to me. So like, God, our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver, deliver us. But if not, we're still not going to bow down. And by the way, some people see this as weak, but what I love this is it's saying, um, I don't control God. And I love that because this is not some weak thing. It's saying, how dare I say, therefore God must do this because I said it out loud. But I don't control God. And there's something so beautiful when you realize, but even if he doesn't, but if not, I'm still not going to bow down to your gods. Like, so I have an expectation. I want God to, I trust this is his will. But if he doesn't do it, it's okay because he's still good. It's okay because I don't control him. And his plans are way better than my plans. Who knows if their death would lead to the salvation of Babylon? The point being, it doesn't matter. Like, we don't control the outcome. But we can control how we respond in the moment. And I just love that. They're like, if he doesn't. I think this is so important because, um, again, I don't think this is a lack of faith. I think Christians, we should pray in some ways like this. We're going, I do believe God can. I believe actually he will. That, that, I want to get you to that second phrase. But then the third one. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If not, God is still God. And I'm not. And how dare I assume I know it's best for me? How dare I assume that me going to the fiery, this fiery furnace, it might lead to the salvation of others. So God, let your will be done. I'm expecting, I'm asking, I'm hoping, I'm trusting. But even if not, even if God doesn't answer the prayer you want him to answer, he's still good and he's still God. God sees things and knows things you and I don't see and know. Even if you don't get the job, even if you don't get that, into that relationship, you want, even if you don't get, like, fill in the blank, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. He's still God. He's still good. He's still the one true God. I'm not going to bow down to the God of sex or greed or whatever it might be to get my way. I'm not going to bow down to it. He's still the one true God. doesn't matter. This spirit of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is like, oh, Lord, put this in me. Put this in my kids, my kids' kids. Put this in our church body. Like, no, there is no room for compromise. None. There's none. I'm not going to bow down. We know he's able. We trust he will. But if he doesn't, we still trust that he's good. Even if not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change a thing. The NLT says it that way. I love it. It says, even if not. Here's what I love about this. Um, there are certain examples of this in Scripture. It's not just here. But I love Jonathan, by the way. Just, I want to present one idea to you. Jonathan's talking to his armor bearer. And, uh, and you see this in 1 Samuel 14. We looked at this a couple years ago. But he's talking to his armor bearer. And he's like, yo, let's go take the Philistines. And he says this in 1 Samuel 14, 6. He says, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. If you guys know, they like, they just take out this garrison of the Philistines. Now, I love this. Like, this is not the best pep talk. It was like, yo, armor bearer, let's go. Perhaps, is another translation, it may be God is for us. Let's go find out. <laughs> but you would never know if you don't go. Like, I love that. God will deliver us. But if not, like, the idea is you won't know until you put yourself in that position. And there's sometimes you're like, but Josiah won't work out. I don't know. But you got to put yourself in a position where God can show up or not. You have to. It's crazy. This is what I think of in the New Testament. In the New Testament, James dies. James, one of the three inner circle followers of Jesus. James dies. Peter's in prison, but he lives. I don't know like, the outcome of it, but James was faithful and Peter was faithful. It's not like one wasn't faithful, Peter was more faithful, that's why I got to live. God's like, well, I guess you're more faithful. You live. You weren't faithful, you die. No, <laughs> it's not that. I don't understand God's ways. It doesn't make sense to me always, but I love the heart and the approach. It's like, let us find out, is God in this? We gotta, we gotta go. We gotta be obedient. I, I'm, I'm not gonna try to control the outcome, but I'm gonna be obedient in this moment. And that's what they do. If not, God will deliver us. So here's, I guess, the question from that section to me. It's like, what do you do when God doesn't do what you want him to do? <laughs> it's a lot of do's, I know. But what do you do? What do you do? 
when God doesn't do what you want him to do? How do you respond to that? Also, by the way, the snapshot of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like we can read this and go, yeah, they already had Daniel 1, where basically by just even requesting not to eat the king's food, they might be put to death for just that. They had Daniel 2, where like the guy goes in, Ariok goes in to kill them. And like, whoa, 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 give us some time. Can we just pray and ask for the, the vision from God? Like, God will give us the vision. Like, they escaped death in Daniel 1. They escaped death in Daniel 2. They escaped death in Daniel 3. But they don't know that. They're taking it one at a time. And it seems like it gets progressively harder. It's like the food thing. We better interpret the vision, or we have, like, one night, or we die. Now this fiery furnace, or we die. But, like, again, they didn't just start with the fiery furnace again. So, church, like, don't think, like, I'm ready for the fiery furnace. Probably just need to, like, figure out the food thing. I don't know. But the idea is, like, you, you kind of progressively work it out. I love this. You just see God kind of preparing them for the next thing. And just, they're like, okay, even if he doesn't, there's no way we're going to compromise. Thank you, Jesus, for the Christians who have not compromised throughout the centuries. That's something, you know what? You can kill me. I'm still going to write this translation and get it out there. You can kill me, but I'm still going to preach the gospel. Like, we benefit from people's convictions yesterday. Do we understand? Do you understand that there will be a generation that will benefit from your convictions today? This is what, like, this is what's heavy on me. When the church begins to compromise, man, the church in the future loses out. And I think when the church has a deep conviction, it's like, we're not going to compromise on this. I'm sorry. I don't care if this is popular worldview in this moment. That will probably change in 20 years. I don't care if this is what the world expects us to say and agree with. We're not. Like, our convictions today, I think, will lead to celebration tomorrow for the other generations. So we're not going to compromise. So you have them. They're confronted. They have deep conviction. And then I love this. In the deep conviction, in the fiery furnace, Christ shows up. So that's number three. Let's just read the last part. It's verse 19. Are you guys still with me? I know it's getting late. It's okay. There's so much here. All right, verse 19. You guys okay for real stuff? All right. Too bad. We're still here. All right, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. I love that. We're not going to compromise. He's filled with fury. Notice the contrast. He's just, it says maliciously angered earlier. He's super angry. They're just like at peace. He's filled with fury. And the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was, than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, you, uh, obviously, you can imagine that, but have you guys ever opened the oven to, like, your like, cookies, and then the fire hits you, and you're like, ah, like, it hits you in the face? I do it all the time. I always open my face near for some reason. That's what happened to them. They open the doors, like, ah, they're dead. They fall in. <laughs> Verse 22, sorry, that was just a random thought. Because the king's order was urgent, yeah, I read that. Verse 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, they fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Verse 26, then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Uh, came out from the fire, and the, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire, listen to this, had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of the heads was not singed, their cloaks uh, were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. And the house laid in ruins for there. And the house laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I, I love this. They're like, yeah, there's no other God. He's right. Please don't do that limb to the limb thing. Like, no. I love this. Obviously, he throws them in. He's furious. He's angry. He's like, I cannot believe they defied me in this way. Throw them in. The men who are going to throw them in, they die by the fire. They're in the fire. He's astonished. There, there's so much here. But here's obviously what I want to see. Um, God doesn't keep them from the fire, obviously, but he preserves them in the fire. This is very important, right? So God doesn't keep them from the fire. Listen, they still went in the fire. Christians, we have to see this point. God could have delivered them in so many different ways. So God could be like, you're not going to the fire. He changed them because of his heart. They didn't go. They still went in the fire, but he just preserved them in it. 
obviously this speaks of suffering in so many ways. You will still face fires. It's not like God's like, oh, that's going to be hard. Like as parents, even like we try to keep our kids from like trials. It's probably the best thing always for them. Like maybe they need that fire. The, The point is God's like, no, no, you still need the fire, but I'm going to preserve you in it. So it's not that they don't go but they're just preserving the fire. Peter, and we'll study 1 Peter at the end of the year. 1 Peter 4, it's a verse you might know, verse 11 and 12, uh, 12 and 13. It says, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. He's like, yo, it's not weird. It's not strange that you're in a fiery trial. Stop thinking that way. It's easy for Christians to go, I shouldn't be in this. Aren't I like beloved of God? Aren't I a child of God? I should never face a trial. He's like, no, don't think it's strange. It's not out there. It's not bizarre. Of course you're going to face fiery trials. In fact, rejoice because you're partaking with Christ in suffering. And the first Peter theme is suffering and glory, suffering and glory. Whenever there's suffering, you can relate to Christ. And then just like Christ suffered and was glorified, you too will suffer and be glorified. But Peter's like, don't think it's strange. We have to understand this. There will be fiery trials. It's not if but when and how, and God might not keep you from it, but he'll preserve you in it. And that thought is so be like, Lord, thank you that you preserve them in it. Thank you that it's not some strange thing. Thank you it's not good Christians don't suffer. Everyone suffers. Paul suffered. So Lord, I'm going to suffer, but thank you for preserving me in the moment of that. That's the primary idea. Now here's, I can't ignore some details before we get to like the pinnacle, obviously. The details that are amazing is they go in bound, but they leave unbound. So think about it this way. The fire did not affect them in any way except for the thing that bound them. It's amazing. So you look at verse 25. He says, I see four men unbound. They're unbound. And then verse 27, the hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. The only thing the fire affected was the very thing that bound them. Why is this important? I think why, because I don't think there's random details in the scriptures, by the way. Why is it saying they're walking around? There's not even a smell. Uh, the phrase that it said in verse 25, I have to see it again. Um, uh, it talks about, I see four men walking around. Oh, it says this, the fire had not had any power over the bodies of the men, verse 27. The fire had no power. So you think about those phrases it's using. It's saying there's no smell. Their hair's not singed. I hate that smell of hair burned, whatever. Nothing. Nothing like that. The only thing the fire affected was the thing that bound them. So the fire essentially set them free. The fire, the thing that bound them was set free in the fire. And there's something so beautiful about this. If you've suffered in any capacity, if you walk through any sort of trial, many times you kind of go into the trial bound by a certain thought, certain fear, whatever it might be. And you realize when you're suffering, you go, oh my gosh, Lord, I can relate to Jesus in a whole new way. The fellowship of sufferings, Philippians 3 says, when you suffer, you get to experience intimacy with Jesus you probably never experienced before. There's fellowship of sufferings. And the things you walked into that fire with bound so often leave unbound because you go, oh my gosh, it just fell apart when I got to spend time with Jesus. There's something so profound about they, le- they came in bound but left unbound. He said, I see four men unbound. They're walking around. It seems like they're enjoying this. They're like, oh, I wonder if this part's going to be hot. They're just walking around this furnace. And it's like the thing that bound them is the only thing the fire affected. Honestly, this is one of those things, right? You have to read this alone. And you go, Lord, thank you, Jesus, that the thing that bound them, the thing that was meant to kill them actually set them free. The thing that was meant to harm them brought them deliverance. So what the, my enemy meant for evil, God meant for good. All of those themes we see in the Bible, wait a second, my enemy meant to bound me and hurt me, or he meant this for evil, but God brought deliverance from this and new life from this. This is one of those phrases, again, I just don't think we can like overlook it. The fire had no power over them. How unbelievable is that? The fire has no power over you. The depths of hell, Satan, the demonic realm has no power over you. Jesus took on the flames of hell so we could have life today. The point is that that does not affect me does not play a role. I love this idea that the fire had no effect on them. It so clearly says. Here's what one author says. He says, don't search for a faith that will keep you from the fire, but for a God that will keep you in the fire. I do think that many people look for a faith that will keep them from it, but look for a faith that will keep you in the fire is essentially what he says. Now, here's the, here's the idea. Obviously, you know what's going on here. Um, I, I don't like to be dogmatic like on scriptures like this, but I'm, I'm, I am going to be dogmatic here. I know people are hesitant on this. Like, who's the fourth man? You know my answer. It's Jesus. I mean, we're not going to hide away from that. I really do believe that. Um, when he describes him as a messenger, he describes him as an angel. That's probably the best that Nebuchadnezzar, who has no worldview of this, can say. This is not uh, 
this is more prescriptive than, or this is more descriptive than it is prescriptive. He's just saying, I see someone glowing. Who's this fourth man? Um, there are certain things in the Old Testament. We call them Christophanies. It's Christ pre-incarnate. It's Christ in the Old Testament. And there are certain moments. It's Joshua and Joshua 5 seeing the angel of the Lord, and he bows before him. He's like, who are you? He's like, I'm the angel. I'm the messenger. I'm the sent one who's in control of God's armies. And he bows before the angel. He's like, stand up, stand up. You don't bow. I'm just an angel. No, he receives it. The point being, there's certain moments in scriptures you just see Jesus. I personally believe without hesitation that this is Jesus in the fire with him. I personally believe that Jesus met them in this fire. The pre-incarnate Jesus meets them in this fire. And I, I love this thought of like, God's like, I'm with you in the fire. So I love this, that they're not just in the fire alone, but there's someone with them. Obviously, you know the idea. Um, the idea is that we're not just alone in the fire, but we have Jesus with us in the fire. And so this is what Isaiah 42 says. Can I tell you? It's funny. I do wonder how much of the scriptures these guys knew. I, I guarantee they're very well-educated men who probably know, knew the prophets well. And here's what it says in Isaiah 42. This is a verse. You might know this, but this is so amazing. He says, when you pass through the waters, God says, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire,